Hello, and welcome to the Young Man's Land podcast. I'm Martin Rogers, joined by Steve O'Neill and the returning Akash Pound. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Martin. Akash, welcome back. Good to have you. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me back. So this podcast is going to be slightly derailed at the beginning because we feel that we have to address the recent situation in America and in Washington, D.C. in particular. So, Steve, can you just start by by giving an outline of exactly what happened in the capital of the United States this week? I mean, wow. Like, I think events um, or accounts of events are still emerging, but the the gist of it seems to have been that um, following calls from uh, Trump to, um, I can't remember his exact form of words, but to take back uh, Congress to sort of, um, to storm the house, um, protesters did just that. It seems like it was a mix of um, people who, who who weren't uh, being violent or aggressive, with uh, a lot of people who were being very violent and aggressive, who broke into into, into Congress. Um, some were carrying guns. Uh, I read that um, things like Molotov cocktails and pipe bombs were found afterwards. Uh, very sadly. Um, it appears that four of the protesters died. And now I think it was only today we found out that a, a police officer also died. Um, and all this comes on of the direct result, it seems, of Trump and other Republicans calling the US election results into, uh, into doubt without any credible evidence, as we've all heard so often in the news over the last sort of few weeks. Um, and it appears that this, this culture of conspiracy theory and the rest of it has reached boiling, boiling points um, pretty tragically and pretty uh, shockingly. There's been discussion about whether this is an attempted insurrection. Is this a coup attempt by the United States president, or do you think this is more a protest, a riot even, or do you think this is a deliberate attempt to effectively take over the control of the government through undemocratic means. of. It's hard to say that Trump's not trying to do that because he has brought these, well, he's brought court cases, I guess, are legitimate, but they've had no basis. And we've also seen his his call with the governor of Georgia trying to say, find me 11,000 and something votes to overturn the result. So he appears serious about overturning the result. The only thing that, that sort of strikes me is that it's so sort of incompetent that it's hard to take it seriously as a coup. It, it seems that like Trump and his supporters would if they could, but they're they're just miles away from being able to. So it's really hard to separate what is sort of for the cameras um, and what is and what is serious. I, I I guess my sense is that it's a bit more show. It's a bit more venting feeling than anything really serious. But it's hard to really say that when there's the evidence of Trump doing some of the things he has done. And I think this really goes to show the um, the strength of the American Constitution, that so much of it was written to prevent exactly this situation happening. But, on the other hand, even given all of that, how fragile really it all is, because how much of it has relied on holders of offices of which I have never heard before in my life doing their job 
not objecting to results, certifying them properly, resisting pressure, as we heard. I mean, the incredible phone call where um, Trump, I think, probably will end up stopping short of actually sort of committing a crime. But he's certainly in that way that he does that's never quite enough to to say that this is sort of definitely what he's saying or what he's doing, but suggesting that, you know, if you could just find me just one more vote, just find them from somewhere, you know, maybe, maybe that would be fine. Trying to put pressure on Mike Pence to, um, to not certify the results, both how strong the constitution is, but how fragile it can be as well. I'll just close this section by saying that I'm publishing a um, blog article on our on our blog about how moderates should respond and can respond to those who clearly don't believe in democracy or only believe in democracy sometimes. And just to say that I think actually sometimes it can be more difficult um, than it can sometimes appear and sort of trying to talk through some of these things. But with that, we'll move on to what we were planning to talk about in this podcast, which is that as the UK recovers from 2020, we look back and forward at two of the issues that have bubbled under the surface a little bit, which might be coming, becoming more prevalent, especially in the wake of forthcoming elections in the UK this year. And to do that, we welcome back Akash Pound. So, Akash, do you want to start by just introducing yourself quickly? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, first of all, thanks um, again for, for, for having me on to talk about this subject. So I work at the uh, Institute for Government, uh, where I've uh, been part of the research staff there now for over a decade, actually. And um, last for the last few years, I've worked mainly on devolution. I lead our research program there on um, devolution. And as you say, I think the next few months... Um, are going to be a really interesting period for for devolution, what with the elections planned in Scotland and in Wales and the big mayoral elections in, in London and lots of the other big English cities. So there's going to be a lot going on, um, assuming those elections take place. Uh, there is some question about whether or not they will happen, but um, we are currently proceeding on the assumption that they will take place in early May. Great, thanks. So let's talk about English devolution first. One of the many fault lines of this pandemic has been between central government and local mayors, most notably the row, largely over funding, between Boris Johnson as Prime Minister and Andy Burnham as Mayor of Manchester. So what do these conflicts say about devolution in England between a man who was once a prominent mayor and a man who has probably not abandoned his dreams of being prime minister. Yeah, I do think this period has been a, um, a, a really kind of interesting moment in the English devolution story. It's, it's, uh, it's for the first time, I think, given some of these figures. So as you say, Andy Burnham is the mayor of Greater Manchester, um, some of the other metro mayors around England as well, the Liverpool and Birmingham and other places have have metro mayors too. It's given them a real sort of national uh, profile for the first time um, as they've made the case in public debate and in negotiations with central government um, for extra funding or for 
particular rules to be either imposed or uh, relaxed for their regions. And I think what we've seen actually is the value that having a an elected figure with a big public uh, democratic mandate and a big profile, uh, what value they can bring to their cities and to their regions um, by by speaking up in, uh, in 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 debate and defending the interests of of their territory. Um, so Andy Burnham, yeah, as you say, like he um, he he made a a very, I think, effective argument that uh, Greater Manchester should get extra resources to cope with the um, imposition of, of stricter lockdown rules there um, a few months ago. And we've seen uh, quite effective interventions too, I think, from the Mayor of, of London and, and some of the other Metro mayors too. Um, but on the other hand, what I would say is I think we've also been reminded um, of how limited the, the real hard powers of these uh, mayors are, certainly when you compare them to the powers um, enjoyed by the devolved institutions in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. So, you know, Andy Burnham can, can speak up. He gets a, a lot of media coverage when he does so. Sometimes he's successful in, um, in persuading central government um, just by making enough of a, of a noise about it, essentially. But, but when it comes down to it, the big decisions are still taken in Westminster and there isn't that much that the devolved institutions within England can do about it. So another claim that's been made by the Labour Party, amongst others, is that England's lack of devolution has meant it hasn't managed the pandemic well. For example, there's claims that Germany's arguably better record is down to the more devolved system, the greater um, power for the lender. And how much credence do you think there is in that? So Labour talking about allowing um, a more local approach to the pandemic because of the greater sort of public health powers that uh, local that lower levels of government have compared to central. How credible do you think that is as a criticism? I think it's quite hard to to explain the record of, of different countries by by reference to their their system of, of devolution or federalism and so on, because there is such variation um, between between different parts of the world in, in how they how well they've dealt with um, with the pandemic. I mean, Germany. There was a period when it was doing quite well and it had um, quite a a well coordinated approach it seemed between central government and the the state governments within the German federal system. Um, but more recently, I think Germany isn't doing so well, and it's in the midst of a, a pretty severe second wave, um, as, as of course the UK is as well. So I think it's hard to to, 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 to pin down um, the, the causal effects in that way. I mean, I think what I would say about about the way this country's handled it is we've obviously ended up with quite a uh, quite a lot of variation between different parts of the country at least until um you know we've ended up with a with an england wide national lockdown again but prior to that of course we had the tier system uh, we did have you know quite different rules applying in, in in different places um but 
the decision making was still being made at the centre and it wasn't always clear that there was buy-in from local political leaders there wasn't it wasn't clear that there was much coordination um, or sort of effective communication between central and um, and and devolved governments within England, um, and I, I do think that led to some of the the problems and the disputes that that you referred to before. Um, Akash, to, fo- to follow up, um, I'm trying to think of what concrete examples there were of where sort of say. Uh, England's response could have done with more devolution. The one that uh, comes to mind for me was around tests and trace. Um, And it's not something I'm across the detail of, but there was lots of talk about how local tests and trace and national tests and trace weren't joined up very well, Um, but also that the national approach uh, could have done with with sort of more local knowledge, better ties to areas. Um, And that's an argument you often hear for for more devolution to some local government is they understand their local labour markets, their local health populations and that better. Um, is that something you recognise and do you have any reflections that relate to that? Well, I think, yeah, local government capacity is, has, of course, been significantly um, hollowed out over over recent years um, by austerity. And, 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 and I think... Um, there wasn't really the effective um, institutional capacity at the local level to, to to take on that role to a large extent because of decisions taken over many years um, at the centre. Um, and I do think, you know, this 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 does this does speak to what I think is you know sort of pathology of English governance, which is its excessive centralisation. Um, and so I don't think in the immediate um, circumstances of the pandemic, um, it was feasible for local government to t- suddenly take on a, a really big role because um, you can't just, you know, suddenly step up to such a big challenge out of nowhere. But I, I think more generally, we do have a problem with excessive centralisation. And, you know, we've, we've, we've taken some steps in recent years to devolve power with the election of the, of the metro mayors and so on. But it's, it's very much a story um, in its uh, early early chapters, I think, and, and there's a long way to go still. So let's move on to Brexit. There is, of course, now a Brexit deal. There's a lot of talk about how it might impact the different parts of the UK, and we'll come back to that in a moment. How does it impact England and English devolution? Well, I think there's a couple of things to say on this. I mean, first of all, I, I think Brexit, um, not just the actual implementation of Brexit at the end of the process, but the whole long Brexit story since 2016 has really knocked English devolution, um, if not completely off, but certainly down the political agenda. Um, I mean, you know, if you go back to 2015, 2016, you had a government then led by David Cameron with, with George Osborne by his side, of course, for whom devolution was a real priority, it seemed, for a while. They were talking about a, a devolution revolution, um, that, that there was, you know, this sort of quite radical rhetoric about how, how there was going to be this transformation of English governance and power in lots of areas of, of economic policy and public service uh, responsibility were expected to be um, transferred away from 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 Whitehall um, and 
that was the period when agreements were reached um, to establish the metro mayors in, in a few places. And we've got the second round of elections, as, as we mentioned, coming up for, for those metro mayors this May. Um, but then Brexit hit and the, the whole thing, to some extent, ground to a halt. Um, and, and we ended up with, I think, both the Theresa May administration and arguably even more so the Boris Johnson administration um, that do not seem to be very pro-devolution in their instincts. And certainly, um, you know, in, in the way that uh, Cameron and Osborne prioritised it, um, decentralising power does not seem to be um, a kind of core part of the, of the government's um, vision for the country. So I think, yeah, the sort of big picture is we went from a period when it was a, a it was a high profile priority for the government to a period when it's been sort of on the agenda. Um, Boris Johnson is still committed to um, to extending devolution in some way. He says um, there's supposed to be an English devolution white paper at some point this year. Many times delayed. Um, but it really doesn't feel like there's a lot of um, energy in this agenda um, anymore. And then if, as far as the specific impacts of Brexit are concerned, like what's actually happened now that we are out of the EU, out of the transition period, um, I think one issue of big concern to the English regions is um, what happens, um, well, what will replace... EU structural and investment funds, so money that was used to support regional economic development. Um, the government is putting in place a new uh, UK shared prosperity fund starting next year, we believe, or next financial year, that is to say. Um, but it's unclear exactly how that's going to work, what will be the, the role that uh, Metro mayors and local government will play in allocating those resources. So I think that is one big um, area of concern. Um, and then, of course, there's going to be um, sort of regionally specific um, economic impacts to Brexit in, in, in some places in particular, as the costs of trade with the EU um, increase due to, due to us leaving the single market and that kind of thing. And, and, and I think we will see the, the devolved institutions um, trying to use the powers that they have to mitigate some of those effects and making the case to the centre for additional powers and fiscal levers um, to, to, to be able to um, to be able to support their economies as we kind of move on both from Brexit and hopefully coronavirus too. So that seems like a good time to touch on levelling up, and you can probably add to that building back better. So, is the lack of enthusiasm for devolution? from the Johnson administration. Is that coherent with this talk about levelling up? Do you need one do you need more devolution in order to be able to level up? Well, I suspect that the government's view is that you don't particularly, <laughs> if you really dig into it. I mean, levelling up is 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 a is a phrase that um I think is used to, 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 to mean 
different things at different times. But I, I, I suppose, broadly speaking, what the government means is um, rebalancing of the economy, closing the gap in, in economic productivity and so on between um, London and the South East and the sort of poorer regions in, in the North and the Midlands and so on. Um, and I, uh, as, as I said, I don't, I don't perceive that the government's view is you need a sort of substantial decentralization of power in order to address that problem. I, I, I think there is a bit of a centralist mindset, a view that um, clever policymakers and uh, strategies d- developed in, in central government um, can can address this problem through you know investment in uh, in industry and infrastructure in in, in sort of underperforming parts of, of the country. Um, but, but but I do yeah I do I do suspect that they they often see um, devolved political institutions and and leaders maybe as just a bit of a an irritation rather than a, a being helpful to their agenda in that respect. So we're just going to close by talking about something that used to be very close to my heart, especially when I worked for Tony Travers at the LSE, which is about local elections. So the first chink in the red wall, the first brick to fall in many ways, was the mayor, Metro Mayor of Tees Valley, which was won by the Conservatives, vastly against expectations um, at possibly the, the lowest point, or one of the lowest points of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party. But that arguably opened the door for the rest of the Conservative sort of um, wave to come through and uh, take the red wall down. The he among the other Metro mayors is up for re-election. So what do you think are the prospects across all of the different elections that are coming up well, let's say that they're scheduled, they are scheduled for this year. Of course, we don't yet know how they will take place, whether they will take place. But do you want to talk about some of the aspects of the local elections, the mayoral elections? Yeah, sure. So as, as far as the mayoral elections are concerned, um, we have, of course... Um, the election in London, the mayor of London is is um, is up for election once more. Um, that, of course, would be um, a huge shock if if we saw anything other than another Labour victory. Um, we then have six Metro mayor elections. These are the six who were first elected in 2017. The first wave of um, of of English devolution, the first set of devolution deals, essentially. Um, and those six, as you say, they took place at a time when the Labour Party was doing pretty badly. Um, the Conservatives won um, four of those, um, including, yes, Tees Valley was a big shock. The West Midlands, they won as well, which was um, which was a fairly tight election. And then they won um, in Cambridge and uh, Bristol city regions as well, which is uh, sort of more typically um, conservative-friendly territory. And then Labour at that time only won in Greater Manchester and um, the Liverpool city region, um, sort of Labour-safe territory. So this time round, uh, we have yeah, all of those elections and then a new um, post of 
Metro Mayor for the Leeds City region, so West Yorkshire, um, is is also being elected for the first time. So, so those are the ones we have to look forward to. And I, I think politically, it's obviously a bit of a sort of defensive election from the Conservative perspective. You can't imagine them gaining London or Manchester or Liverpool. Can't imagine them doing particularly well in Leeds either. So they're really going to be battling to hold on to the four that they won um, four years ago. Um, I haven't seen any recent um, regional polling from those places. I don't think there is much at the moment, but but hopefully we will get some um, in due course. Um, but yes, I think um, certainly Labour will be, be hoping to potentially win back um, in Tees, well, win Tees Valley and, and maybe Birmingham as well. And then, yeah, aside from that, we also have police and crime commissioner elections, which people often forget about, also delayed from last year, um, and some local elections as well, which, um, yeah, we'll, local council elections, which will give a, an indication of exactly how bad of a year um, this has been for, for the Conservative government. Steve, did you want to come in? Yeah, I wondered if I actually had any insights on what sort of drives people's votes in some of these elections, bearing in mind that they're relatively new. I think you said lots of the Metro mayors came in 2017. And what I mean is, are, are people voting on party lines? Are they responding to the sort of national debate? Or is it very much local issues? Or is it, or is it something else? Well, that's, a, that's actually a really good question. I, I think it's hard to... It's hard to know because these are pretty new posts. I mean, in 2017, when, um, yeah, those, that set of six mayors were elected for the first time, um, turnout was pretty low. It was sort of between 20 and 30 percent in, in most places. Um, I don't think, um, a lot of voters understood exactly what these, um, new mayors would do, what the purpose um, of of those of that new sort of tier of government even was, um, and, and I suspect at that time it was largely people just voting along party lines um, more than really kind of paying attention to the candidates and their manifestos for the cities and so on. Um, four years on, um, yes, as we've just been discussing. I, I, some of these individuals, notab- most notably Andy Burnham, but Steve Rotherham in Liverpool too, Andy Street in the West Midlands, have made a bit of a name for themselves. Um, so I think to some extent this will be a vote on, um, yes, on, 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 on those individuals and how well they are personally perceived to have done. But, but of course, national politics always plays into it as well. And when you've got a very unpopular um, Prime Minister, um, at least in you know some of these places, he, he is he is pretty unpopular. Um, it's not going to really matter that much what the the local Conservative candidate does or says. Uh, um, they are likely to get dragged down by by Boris Johnson. And conversely, you know, if if Keir Starmer um, is doing a relatively good job, certainly better than Jeremy Corbyn was perceived to have been doing previously, he's he's likely to help raise the the boats of, of all the Labour candidates across the country. Right, thanks. So let's move on to the four nations. So we've talked obviously about England, which to a large extent is the, the dog that doesn't bark in the UK. The other issue with the pandemic seems to have, is that it seems to have exposed how the different nations of the UK are governed, which you'd say, well, 
that's fair enough. That's why we have devolution, so they can diver- diverge. But it seems to this is one of the first times the different sort of politics between the UK governments, in both in terms of makeup, political makeup, and policy, has been at the top of the news agenda. What do you think we should make? I think this is the first period when a lot of people have noticed that there is um, quite a yeah, powerful form of devolved government in, in the other nations of the UK. Um, a lot of people appeared to be quite surprised um, when, for the first time in, in sort of June, July, the rules, as far as lockdown were concerned, began to diverge between, between England and, and the other nations. Um, so, so I think the media has often reported this in quite a confusing way, certainly in the early phase of, of the pandemic. You know, you'd often get sort of reporting of, of what Boris Johnson was announcing as if it applied to the whole of the UK, whereas in, in effect, um, for much of this pandemic, he's been, he's been acting as First Minister of England rather than Prime Minister of the UK. But gradually, I think, yeah, people have really um, come to come to recognise the power that has been devolved all along um, to Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland and, and certainly Nicola Sturgeon and Mark Drakeford in Wales, um, Arlene Foster to some extent in Northern Ireland too. I think they've really gained a sort of prominence as, as national political figures that... Um, probably with the exception of Nicola Sturgeon, they didn't really have before. Um, so, yeah, I, and I, I think in a way it's been, a, it's been quite a, a good thing for the country because this has been the, the, the constitutional settlement that we've had for 20 years, um, but awareness of it has tended to be quite poor. And there's been examples of, of policy differences, of course, tuition fees being... Uh, free in Scotland, the smoking ban came in first in Scotland before before anywhere else in the UK. Things like that, but but nothing quite on this scale that's that's led to this realization that yeah we don't live in a a unitary state where Boris Johnson can can decide everything for the whole of the UK anymore. Well, one thing he's certainly driven for the whole of the UK is Brexit. Now, it's talked about in terms of its implications for the devolved nations, mainly Scotland and Sturgeon attempting to use it to further her case for independence. So what's going on? With, what are the implications of Brexit for the devolved nations? Are they going to gain any more powers as part of the process? Well, that is quite a contested issue, actually. But, I, I, I mean, I think... The answer is yes, they will gain some additional powers, but it remains a bit unclear um, how the UK government intends to use powers that it will have as a result of Brexit, for example, relating to um, management of the UK internal market, which the devolved government's fear um, is going to be a sort of Trojan horse to undermine devolved autonomy. But in, in terms of sort of specific areas, um, there are a lot of areas of, uh, of law that are devolved to, uh, to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, um, but that 
until now, until this month, month essentially, um, have been very constrained by EU law. So, you know, lots of issues to do with the environment and agriculture, um, public transport aspects of, um, of, of policing and justice even, and various other things are devolved if you look at the actual devolution legislation. But that devolution was, was a bit of a fiction because, because EU law was supreme and applied all across the, across the UK automatically. So in some of those areas, yeah, the devolved governments are, are going to be freer to, um, to, to, to diverge if they, if they choose to do so. But on the other hand, as I say, we've got the UK Internal Market Bill, um, which uh, may be used essentially to drive a race to the bottom um, in which English regulation kind of de facto becomes uh, the norm across the UK because of the way um, that legislation will work and, 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 and the fact that it will require, um, say, Scotland to allow... English products to be sold in Scotland, even if they don't meet with, say, Scottish environmental standards, for example. So did you, the UK, whether devolved or undevolved, never diverge from go above and beyond EU law in any of these relevant areas, such as environmental workers' rights? Well, yeah, there has been gold plating, as they call it, and um the, the the uk has a good record relatively speaking on 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 these issues on say like paid annual leave and um some aspects of of environmental regulation but um as things stand now whether or not it is warranted there is certainly a concern in in edinburgh and in cardiff that the current administration at westminster may be planning to use um the opportunity of Brexit to drive down standards in some of these areas, um, and that's something that they've they've certainly um, argued strongly against. Um, I, you know, it's, we're still in the very early days of, of, of post Brexit Britain, of course, so it's not quite clear how these dynamics will play out. Um, but yeah, there is, I think, the potential at least for devolved autonomy in some of these areas to be to be reduced. So what? Is the future of the union then, or does it have a future? I suppose is is the follow up question. Um, well, where to start with that, Martin? I mean, we have, as as discussed, the, the Scottish and Welsh elections uh, coming up. That's going to be um, quite a quite a dramatic moment. I think the SNP are on track. It seems to win a pretty healthy victory quite possibly an overall outright majority in the Scottish Parliament, despite that being a proportional electoral system. If they do that, um, clearly the issue of Scottish independence is going to be firmly back on the agenda. That's uh, the argument that they're going to be taking to the Scottish voters um, in May. Um, And then we may be in for another kind of constitutional standoff between Edinburgh and, and Westminster, because it's not at all clear that the Scottish government can even hold a referendum without the agreement of Westminster. And of course, they can't just declare unilateral independence. So they'll be kept against their will, potentially? Steve, you wanted to... 
Yeah, I had a, um, it's as much as a comment uh, as a question. Um, the, the news that I've followed around the debates in Scotland, um, and by news I'm, I'm really referring to focus groups I've heard readouts and reports on and, and polling, seems to suggest that a lot of opinion around independence uh, it is quite linked to Nicola Sturgeon's popularity. And it's quite a contrast with sort of how badly... Uh, Boris is perceived to have handled the pandemic in particular, um, and I suppose probably with going for a hard Brexit as well, that, that has painted uh, Sturgeon in a, in a positive light in Scotland. Um, I, in some ways, it seems slightly odd to me that um, such a, uh, a big um, sort of constitutional question would come down to what seems like kind of the politics of the day. Um, but maybe that's just the situation we're in. But any reflections you've got on that would be interesting. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the last year has been has been very good for the cause of independence. Yes, simply because Nicola Sturgeon is perceived by Scottish voters to have done a far better job than Boris Johnson. I mean, the polling evidence on that is is absolutely clear cut. I was I was looking at um, I think it was a YouGov poll from December um, before and 79 um, percent of Scottish voters thought that the Scottish government and Nicola Sturgeon personally um, had, had done a good job during coronavirus. The figure for the UK government was just 23%. The figure for Boris Johnson personally was just 19%. So, you know, that's an enormous um, gulf in, in, in popularity. And yeah, that's definitely, I think, contributed to a rise in support for the SNP, certainly for the for the Scottish Parliament elections, um, but probably also um, a rise in support for people saying they would they would back independence too, because um, you know it becomes a lot easier for the Scottish government to make the case that we will be better off if we are unshackled from you know these idiots in Westminster. I'm, I'm putting it in their terms, not my terms, but. Um, I think this this is just a much easier sell to, 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 for them to make um, when there is this perception of very poor performance by the UK government. Um, and then, yeah, of course, we have Brexit as well, which um, over the past couple of years um, has also contributed to a, to a rise, steady rise, actually, in, in support for independence, um, and again, it's a very easy case for the Scottish government to make that in 2014, in the first independence referendum, the unionist side made <clears throat> made the case very strongly that if you want to stay inside the European Union, you have to vote no, because otherwise you'd be jeopardising Scotland's place in the European Union. And that was shown to be obviously completely untrue. 2016, 62% of Scottish voters then voted again to, to remain in the European Union. Um, and I think that narrative of Brexit being a, almost a democratic betrayal of Scotland has, has really taken root. And it does go beyond sort of traditional SNP pro-independence supporters. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a very strong uh, case that, that they are now making. Um, I would just add, though, that I think if we do end up with a, <clears throat> excuse me, with a referendum taking place, I don't think it's going to be quite as easy of a 
of a campaign for 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 the SNP and for the yes sides when it really gets down to um, debate about okay how is independence really going to work what currency is Scotland going to use how is Scotland going to maintain its current level of public spending when at the moment there's a fiscal transfer of somewhere between 10 and 13 billion pounds uh, from England to Scotland every year to support higher public spending than essentially than Scotland can afford you know what's going to happen on the border between England and Scotland if Scotland rejoins um, the European Union or the European single market and England does not? Are we then going to have trade barriers between England and Scotland? Those are the things that I think in the end um, are going to concentrate Scottish voters' minds um, perhaps more than what's currently a very effective sort of emotional appeal to to the idea of, of Scottish um, self-determination and sovereignty and the Scottish democratic will and so on. What then, given all of that, do you make of Johnson, Boris Johnson's supposed comments that devolution has been a disaster in Scotland? Do you think that that's likely to add further fuel to the independence flame? Or do you think that might, whilst rhetorically sort of useful to the SNP, will then get lost when people consider how on earth are you going to to pay your taxes, what currency are you going to have? I think in the short run, yes, as you say, it's, a, it's, it's, it's useful tactically um, for the SNP to have Boris Johnson, um, well, he wasn't on record, but having been uh, caught, shall we say, uh, making that kind of comment. And um, yeah, if I was an SNP candidate up against a Conservative challenger, it's probably the first thing I would be writing into my um, election literature and, and, and leaflets and so on. Um, but will it really make that big of a difference? I kind of doubt it because it's almost priced in, I think, for, for many Scottish voters and certainly the kind of Scottish voters who might be considering voting for the SNP or for independence that, you know, Boris isn't seen as a friend of Scotland or, 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 or as being a particularly great prime minister. Um, so I doubt that it will change too many minds when it really comes down to should we vote yes or no on as fundamental of a question as as breaking up the UK. Now, talking of breaking up the UK, we mustn't forget that there are other bits in England and Scotland. And one of the most difficult aspects of Brexit, indeed, it arguably brought down a prime minister, is Ireland. The, so Brexit has brought the prospect of Irish reunification into focus in a way that never ha has been previously, certainly in, in recent years at least, and certainly during EU membership. So what lies ahead for Northern Well, so there's no election in Northern Ireland this year, of course, unlike Scotland and Wales, so we won't get that um, electoral indicator of, of the state of, of public opinion um, there. Um, but yes, you are right that um, reunification of Ireland is being talked about more seriously um, than, than, than was the case um, previously, I think, um, almost at any point. Um, when you look at the opinion poll data, it does still appear that the 
the pro-reunification side, the, the, the Republican nationalist side, um, have quite a way to go to, to, to build a, a 50% plus um, level of support for, for reunification. Um, I think there's not masses of polling on this. It seems that there may have been a bit of a, a rise in support for that uh, for, for that idea, but most people in the north um, seem to still want to remain um, governed by a power sharing executive um, that you know brings together unionists and nationalists within the UK, but of course with a, a very sort of special close relationship with Dublin. Um, through north-south cooperation and 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 so on. So I think in the short run, um, I'm not expecting that issue to kind of explode in the way that Scottish independence might. But in the longer run, there's reasons to think that that might be the the, the direction of travel. I mean, I think it's, there's been some quite interesting development. It's just in the last couple of weeks, actually, in the context of Brexit, where um, the Republic of Ireland, the, the government in Dublin, has um, has has committed to to pay for people in in Northern Ireland, students in Northern Ireland, to take part in the um, EU Erasmus student exchange scheme, for example. Which is only a small thing; it's not going to cost very much money. But symbolically, I think it's it's quite interesting, actually, that um, on that issue. Um, the government of of um, of of the Republic of Ireland is is sort of taking on this role of guaranteeing the rights of people in the north, um, and there'll be that sort of divergence in rights, therefore, between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. Um, and then the other thing, yeah, we may begin to see is if the UK government does take the opportunity of Brexit to to diverge from. European Union law in terms of economic regulation and so on, we will begin to see that sea border between GB and Northern Ireland feel like more of a harder border. You know, the the, the, the checks on, um, on on goods and so on that are already having to take place, um, that may become more of a harder barrier if we have that uh, policy divergence. And Northern Ireland will potentially just start to feel more and more like part of a single space, single economic and and legal space with the Republic of Ireland. Um, And maybe in the long term, it will just feel like the the, the natural next step to go for formal reunification and the transfer of sovereignty. But I do suspect that that's quite a long way off. Now, let's complete the UK by talking about Wales. Now, there isn't such a strong move towards independence in Wales. It's a tiny, tiny movement where it exists at all. What about how devolution debates are playing out in the last place, the last nation in the UK currently run by the Labour Party? Well, there is a little bit of talk of of Welsh independence too, but yeah, I think it's, and and yeah, Plaid Plaid Cymru and, and Adam Price is their relatively new um, leader has certainly been talking up the prospects of, of Welsh ind- independence more than his predecessors. But I, I think the economic reality is that it's a much, much more difficult uh, case to make for, for Wales to become independent from England, even than, than Scotland. Um, so meanwhile, how might devolution evolve over the coming periods? Um, I think one interesting thing to look out for will be whether... Labour 
um, lose their dominant position that they've held in Cardiff throughout the period of um, of, of devolution since '99, and potentially end up going back into coalition, maybe with Plaid Cymru, who, with whom they did govern for four years um, uh, a while ago. Because if you end up with a Labour Plaid coalition, it might end up to feel it might end up feeling more like a sort of soft nationalist coalition government there that will be making the case not for independence if you still have Labour there in government but perhaps for significant further devolution devolution of police and justice powers which um, which Scotland and Northern Ireland has maybe for extra sort of uh, fiscal powers and so on as well um, the Welsh government is also um, quite in favour of um, a federal settlement for the UK um, and, and those kind of ideas may begin to get more of a, a hearing as well. OK, well, thank you very much for that um, roundup of how things are in the UK at the moment. So we've got about 10 minutes left. So in 10 minutes or less, or less could you both run us through 2020? Given we're just a few days now into 2021, it seems a good time to consider some reflections on the year just gone. So, Steve, what are some of your takeaways from 2020? Well, gosh, where to start with this year? Although I feel I could have said that about the last few years, but this year has certainly been um, a bit more overwhelming. Um, Thinking back to the sort of start of um, the year when the pandemic became the sort of central news. I remember we were talking a lot about how uh, all the kind of political divides, that, particularly around Brexit, that we had been sort of obsessing over, A, looked a bit small, and how the country was coming together somewhat. So we, we sort of talked about collateral carers, uh, patriotism around the NHS, things like that, and wondered whether all this kind of culture war stuff would go away. Um, there was a little bit of that, but actually uh, I feel that, that even in... Uh, light of the events, the pandemic, and everything else, it, it hasn't it hasn't felt like that. The the sort of Twitter wars and the rest of it have still been very strong. In fact, often about the pandemic um, and various other issues that are more that are more cultural. So, um, I suppose that's one reflection: is that despite it all, we're still um, facing some quite big political divides, particularly in the US, which we've covered more perhaps um, this year on the on the podcast than we did the year before. Um, and that's that's really brought home by what we started the podcast talking about, which is the events in in DC. So I suppose my overall reflection is a bit is a bit gloomy in that respect. Akash, yeah. So I think um, on the on the political polarization and, and cultural war front, um, which I know you guys on the podcast talk about a lot. Um, it hasn't been a great year for um, centrist uh, moderate politics and, and people finding common ground and so on. And yeah, I think I agree with you, Steve, as you say, there's been a kind of um, convergence of, of the, the existing culture war on Brexit with, um, to some extent, a new front um, and relating to coronavirus and, 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 and lockdown rules and so on. And then on top of that, of course, we've had the sort of spillover from um, developments in the US um, or the Black Lives Matter stuff and so on. So um, it's felt like a very kind of um, 
polarizing periods of 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 of, of, of politics and and public debate in in not a particularly healthy way. I do think that um, everyone being stuck at home on their computers, um, not engaging with people in in normal. Uh, ways in pubs and cafes and workplaces um, probably has a lot to do with it because you know Twitter's Twitter is a uh, has its great strengths but um, I think does um, you know produce echo chambers and and the kind of quite partisan tone of of of, of debate that um, therefore you know the more that that's people people's main mode of interacting with each other. Um, the more that has become the tenor of of politics, I fear, this year. I think that's a really good point. And I really hope, so my hope politically for the year ahead is that having stared into the abyss, people will realise exactly what is looking back at them and will take a step back and go, oof, I'm not sure about this. Unfortunately, then you have some of the polling that's come out of around what's happened in America and a very, very narrow of plurality of Republicans supporting the storming of the Capitol building. I think off the top of my head, one poll, I, I think YouGov poll was something like 45% of Republicans in favour and 43% opposed, if I remember correctly. And I I really hope that, obviously, the the vaccine works, COVID retreats, we learn how to to deal with it. And then once people go back out into the world and they see people again outside of their homes, that the temperature drops a bit, there's a great moderation, and people just step back, cool the temperatures, and get back to a more consensual, moderate politics. That's my great hope. But unfortunately, then you do see some of the actions in places like, obviously, America, and and in some places in Eastern Europe as well, the tensions bubbling under in, in France. Uh, and, of course, the longer-term impact of COVID, how we're going to pay for all of this, the economic narrow economic consequences in terms of the number of people losing their jobs, well, that doesn't tend to help the political temperature. But then if support is sufficient so that people don't lose their jobs in vast numbers, how on earth we get, begin to pay for it, whether we have more of wealth taxes, whether we have higher taxes generally, all of these things. But I just really hope that we can approach these in a more consensual and decent manner hopefully as the pandemic and as you say Akash our reliance on social media uh, takes a sort of a backward step once we can see each other in person again yeah I mean I totally agree with that and I think um, another thing that you know we didn't talk about as a a specific issue but um, just when you look when you look back at it and I think when historians look back on it um, 2020 has just seen this absolutely extraordinary expansion of the role of government, both in the economy and in our everyday lives. And, you know, the encroachment on on civil liberties um, is, you know, completely without precedent in, in, in most of the West. And 
you know, there are there is, of course, a good reason why it has happened. But it does rather worry me sometimes that um, people have gone along with it very, very acquiescently. And a lot of people have been calling for tougher restrictions, going sooner, going uh, you know, harder in uh, closing down basically every aspect of our of our lives, um, and I just fear that the path back to normality um, of where we people feel comfortable just going about their daily lives in a normal way and interacting with each other in a normal way might be quite a long one, um, and having sort of. <laughs> in a way invited government to take on this huge um it may not be that um keen to 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 to, to step back again anytime soon i think that's a really good point it really demonstrates the importance of having liberal governments that respect and are bound by the rule of law because a liberal democratic government bound by the rule of law with controls over people's lives of the type and depth that we see at the moment is one thing. It's a government that is not liberal, not liberal, not democratic, not bound by laws and norms. That's Having that kind of power, as we see in China, is a very different matter. So let's end on that um, uh, uh, sweet and sour note perhaps hopeful and yet fearful as uh, as befits a moderate podcast i suppose so akash great to have you back thank you very much for your time as ever thanks for having me steve thank you very much as always thanks both real pleasure and thank you very much for listening this has been the no man's land podcast and goodbye <laughs>